Elhamdülillah, nehmeduhu ve nesta'inuhu ve nestağfiruh ve na'udhu billahi min şurur enfusina ve seyyiati a'malina men yehdihillahu fela mullallah ve men yubulil fela hadiyalah ve eşhedü en la ilahe illallahu vahdahu la şerike lah ve eşhedü enne muhammeden abduhu ve rasuluh Ama ba'd Continuing with Kitabut Tawheed of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala with the explanation of Sheikh Salih al-Fawzad hafizahullah ta'ala we have now reached the chapter Babu ma jaa fi himayatil Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam جناب التوحيد وسده كل طريق يوصل إلى الشرك The chapter regarding what has come in regards to the preservation or guardianship of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam upon Tawheed, the preservation of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam upon Tawheed, and how he blocked every pathway leading to shirk. The preservation of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of Tawheed and how he blocked every pathway leading to shirk. So this is the new chapter. Anybody want to read today? Make it clear. Try to make the words clear. قال المصنف رحمه الله باب ما جاء في هماية المصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم جناب التوحيد وسده كل طريق يوصل إلى الشرك وقوله تعالى لقد جاءكم رسول من أنفسكم عزيز عليه ما عنتم هريس عليكم الآية أن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تجعلوا بيوتكم قبورا ولا تجعلوا قبر عبده وصلوا علي فإن فإن صلاتكم تبلغني حيث قمتم رواه أبو داود بإسناد حسن رواته الثقات وعن علي بن وعن علي بن الحسين أنه رأى رجلا يجيء إلى فرجة كانت عند قبر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فيدخل فيها فيدعو فنهاه وقال ألا أحدثكم حديثا سمعته من أبي عن جد عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال 
تتخذوا قبره ولا بيوتكم قبورا فإن تسليمكم يبلغني أينما كنتم رواه في المختار Again, in this chapter, Al-Sheikh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, says at the start, هذا الباب عقده الشيخ رحمه الله في بيان حماية المصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم لجناب التوحيد والأبواب التي قبله أيضا هي في حماية التوحيد لكن الأبواب التي قبله عامة وما في هذا الباب أمور خاصة This particular chapter is going to talk about how the Prophet ﷺ preserved Tawheed and made sure that it was protected and guarded and that no shirk came into it and how he blocked every pathway leading to shirk. A person may say, but the previous chapters were all about that too. And they were, but the previous chapters were more general. Whereas this chapter is more specific to the Prophet ﷺ and his preservation of Tawheed and how he blocked all the pathways to shirk. So of course all of the chapters are about that generally and the previous ones right now generally but this one is more specific on that topic. And that's important to remember at the start of Kitab al-Tawheed we mentioned one of the objectives that they used to test you on at the University of Medina with this book was to see if you had an understanding and recognition of the connection between chapters. They may say to you, what is the connection between this chapter and the one prior to it. How are they connected? Why did a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab go from that chapter to this particular chapter next? That was one of the objectives. And by doing that, a student who knows that, then you have a good understanding of the book. Not just the evidences and their meanings, but also how all of the book is connected together, how the chapters are related to each other. And then the other main objective they used to talk about was knowing the meaning of the titles and how and why they are connected to the actual chapter. So this title talks about how the Prophet preserved Tawheed and blocked all the pathways to it, you should then be thinking as the evidences come up, how are all of these evidences making that point? The point of the chapter title. And sometimes you saw in the previous chapters there were no 
titles. In some chapters there are no actual titles because the chapter title or the start of the chapter is just an ayah of the Qur'an sometimes. It's an ayah of the Qur'an. such and such. Some of the chapters are just an ayah title as the title. So even then, you are supposed to be able to understand how does that ayah represent what is in the rest of this chapter. How do the evidences of this chapter relate back to that ayah? All of these are objectives in understanding Kitab al-Tawheed properly. So here, al-Shaykh al-Fawzan says the connection is that all of these chapters, this one and the previous ones, are talking about the preservation of Tawheed and blocking off pathways to shirk. But the previous chapters here were general, whereas this one here is more specific. And you'll see why it is more specific and the evidences that relate to the messenger himself. So then he says, all of the chapters generally here, the last few that we've been going through, they speak about al-hulu fi salihin وَبِنَاءُ الْمَسَاجِدِ عَلَى الْقُبُورِ وَالْغُلُوء فِي الْقُبُورِ كُلُّ هَذَا مِنَ الْوَسَائِلِ الْمُفْضِيَةِ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ Having excessiveness and exaggeration in the righteous, building places of worship on top of the graves, having excessiveness and exaggeration in the graves of those deceased, all of those types of things are pathways or means that lead to shirk or take a person towards shirk. وَقَدْ نَهَى النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ عَنْهَا سَدًّا إِلَى الشِّرْكِ And the Prophet forbade all of those various things, the hulu, the excessiveness and exaggeration in people, the hulu, the excessiveness and exaggeration at the graves, building the places of worship on top of them, all of those types of things. The Prophet ﷺ warned against as a means or as a way to block the pathways to shirk. If you allow people to go into ghulu at the graves, it opens up the door to shirk occurring. You allow people to build on top of graves, it opens up the door to shirk occurring. So all of those things were blocked so that no, uh, the, the door is not opened up into that affair of shirk. وَاحِدًا بَعْدَ وَاحِدًا الشيخ Al-Fawzan says, Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised that these chapters, several of them, all seem to be talking about and revolving around the same kinds of topics. The exaggeration in people, the exaggeration in the graves, the building on the graves, 
A lot of these chapters here now, the last two or three, have been talking about that theme. The Sheikh says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab mentioned multiple chapters around those topics. Because this particular topic, it is something tremendous. It is something big. It is a big door leading into shirk. And as we mentioned before, the origin of shirk occurred through the origin of shirk occurred al-ghuluf al-salihin the excessiveness and exaggeration in the righteous people at the time of Nuh alayhi salam those people went into ghulu regarding those righteous people and so when those righteous people died from their excessive praise and love of them the shaitan was able to open a door whereby eventually step after step after step he enabled or was able to cause the following generations of people to fall into shirk itself so this is a great affair and as we mentioned it is so great also that at the beginning of islam when the people were entering into islam it was prohibited to go to the graveyards to visit because of the danger again and to purify the hearts away from those affairs and then when they became established upon aqidah it was then opened up it was allowed for them to visit to remember the afterlife to give salam upon the deceased etc so the Sheikh says, فالشرك إنما حصل في هذه الأمة بسبب الفتنة في القبور والغلو فيها وبسبب الغلو في الصالحين والغلو في الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم فالشرك إنما حصل في هذه الأمة بسبب هذه الأمور منذ أن بنيت المساجد على القبور ومنذ أن ظهر التصوف في هذه الأمة he says these are the types of things that have caused shirk to occur within the ummah ever since they began building places of worship on top of the graves or specifically in this ummah began building mosques on top of graves or placing graves into mosques and ever since the ways of the Sufis began then these forms and various forms of shirk have begun to appear. Why does he mention the Sufis here? Because one of their main problems is Al-Ghuluf Salihin to the extent that they take it as far as saying some of their Imams don't even need to pray anymore. They don't need to do this. They don't need to do that. This is halal for them. That is halal for them. They believe that Imams reach such a level, exaggerate so far, and all of that is a means of shirk occurring amongst them and falling into dangerous and misguided affairs. So shirk, it is something that becomes great 
and spreads and becomes uh, plentiful occurring amongst this ummah except for those whom Allah has mercy upon. So the affair is certainly dangerous. This is not something light. As the people of misguidance, they say, Tawheed can be learned in five minutes. Tawheed can be learned in five minutes, they say. And I recall a Shaykh Ali Nasir al-Faqihi, Hafizahullah Ta'ala mentioning it once to in one of the gatherings, he said they claim that Tawheed can be learnt in five minutes, that don't prostrate to an idol, don't prostrate here, don't prostrate there, finished. Tawheed, you've done it. What else is there to it? Don't prostrate to an idol, that's it. And they don't realize the depth of this affair and how many different types of aspects come into the discussion of Tawheed and into the discussion of shirk to the extent that the da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ in Makkah for 13 years was purely focused on Tawheed. All of what we call fiqh, the fiqh rulings, all of those that you see in the Qur'an, they were all revealed to the time of the Hijrah onwards. Most of those are madani ayat, madani chapters. Madani Suwar, the rulings on the fiqh, what we call it. Whereas the Makki chapters, all of those years, it was focused on Tawheed and Shirk and Paradise and Hellfire and those affairs to establish that at the beginning. As Shaykh Abdullah Bukhari used to say, the phrase, At-Takhliyah, At-Takhliyah, Qabla At-Takhliyah, which means, We've mentioned it before many a time too. Takhliya from khalla means to clear something out. To make it clean, wipe it out, empty it out, make it clean. At-takhliya. Qabla at-takhliya. Before the, uh, yeah, in a brief phrase you could say, uh, uh, what was the first thing you said? No, no, first. Remove, okay, so removal prior to adornment. Meaning that the example, if you go to a kitchen, you want to drink a cup of water, and you see that the cup is dirty. You see that the cup is dirty. So if you want to drink some water in that cup, the first thing you're going to do is, or normal people, the first thing you would do is, clean the cup, then you would put the fresh clean water into it to drink and the uh, uh, the sheikh used to say this is what the prophet did with the people at the beginning of the da'wah it was a case of the takhliya of their hearts to cleanse their hearts and remove all of the affairs of jahiliyyah that they used to be upon cleanse and remove all of that so now when it's a clean vessel, you can now do the adornment in it, which is the adornment of Tawheed. So the Shaykh says, the Shaykh Al-Fawzan, the affair is very dangerous. وَلِذَلِكَ كَرَّرَ الشَّيْخُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ فِي هَذَا الْمَوْضُوعِ وَأَبْدَى وَأَعَادِ That's why Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab 
repeated this affair and mentioned multiple chapters with various evidences around this topic. لأنه هو المرض الذي أصاب الأمة من أجل أن ينبه العلماء وينبه المسلمين على هذا الخطر الشديد ليقوموا بعلاجه. This illness and this disease, shirk, has occurred and afflicted the ummah. So as Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, with these chapters, with this book, one of his objectives was to alert and to bring the attention of the scholars and the students to this affair. And the Muslims on the whole to this affair, so that they, particularly the scholars, can then treat this disease that is spreading. They can then treat this disease of shirk and the various means of shirk that are spreading within the ummah. They can then deal with it. وَالدَّعْوَةِ إِلَى التَّوْحِيدِ وَنَفْيُ الشِّرْكِ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ I'm calling to Tawheed and negating shirk and rejecting that and removing that from this ummah. وَإِلَّا إِنْ سَكَتَ الْعُلَمَةِ عَنْ هَذَا الْأَمْرِ فَإِنَّهُ يَتَعَاظَمُ But if the scholars were to remain silent upon this affair, the affair of shirk and the different types of shirk occurring, if the scholars were to remain silent upon that and not clarify it, then فَإِنَّهُ يَتَعَاظَمْ Then that affair of shirk will only become bigger and greater. وَبِالتَّالِي فِي النِّهَايَةِ يَكْثُرُ الْجَهْلِ And consequently in the end, if that affair is left and the scholars do not clarify, in the end, ignorance and jahl will prevail. Ignorance and jahl will prevail and spread. وَتَعْتَبَرْ هَذِهِ الْأُمُورِ مِنَ الدِّينِ تَعْتَبَرْ هَذِهِ الْأُمُورِ مِنَ الدِّينِ In the end, it will become such that these affairs that are actually shirk will simply be deemed by the people to be religion. They will deem these actions and affairs as religion and not as shirk. And that is what you see in some of the places and countries. They engage in all types of activities that are incorrect, haram, as we've learned in Kitab al-Tawheed now. But in those countries and in those communities, they do not know except that these activities are part of our religion. You go to the graves, you do shafa'ah, you do this, you do that. وَيُعْتَبَرْ مَنْ نَهَا عَنْهَا مِنَ الْخَارِجِينَ عَنِ الدِّينِ كَمَا حَصَلَ And it gets to the level, if the scholars remain silent and no clarification is given, it gets to the level in the end, whereby those who do stand up to clarify that are considered to be the, the outsiders, the ones who are, are extreme or the ones who do not know what they are talking about. 
That's how they are then deemed and viewed amongst the people. The one who rebukes these affairs of shirk, وَيُنَبِّهُ النَّاسَ إِلَى خَطَرِهَا And the one who brings the attention of the people to the danger of these affairs of shirk, وَيَدْعُوا إِلَى التَّوْحِيدِ يَرْمُونَهُ بِأَنَّهُ متشدد. So the one who calls to tawheed, he is accused of being an extremist, accused of being an extremist, وَأَنَّهُ خَارِجَ عَنِ الْأُمَّةِ and that he is the one who is outside of this ummah. لِأَنَّ الْأُمَّةِ عِنْدَهُمْ هُمْ عِبَّادَ الْقُبُورِ Because as far as they are concerned now, the affair has got to a level whereby the worshippers of the graves, they are the ummah. And their actions, that is their religion. As for a muwahid, a, a person of tawheed, he is deemed the outsider, the extremist, who does not understand the religion. وَمَنْ أَنْكَرَ عِبَادَةَ الْقُبُورِ صَارَ خَارِجًا عَنِ الْأُمَّةِ وَهَذَا مِنْ قَلْبِ الْحَقَائِقِ So that now, that kind of scenario and circumstance existing, which it does right now in real life, in places, that is then an alternation you have altered and changed and turned around the reality. The reality is what they are upon is outside of the religion and what you are upon is the religion and tawheed. But the affairs have become altered and turned. Qalb al-haqaiq. Qalb in Arabic. Qalabah. To turn, to alternate. And that's why the qalb, the heart, in Arabic the word is qalbun, qulubun. Because a qalb comes from the root word in Arabic meaning to alternate and turn and change. And that is what occurs to the hearts of the people. They alternate and they change. Perhaps a person is one day upon guidance and perhaps the next day he leaves that guidance. Or perhaps one day a person is upon shirk and the next day his heart changes and he accepts he's upon tawheed. The hearts, they change. And that's why in the dua, the Prophet wasallam used to say, Ya muqallib al-qulubi thabbit qalbi ala deenik. Oh, the one who changes the hearts of the people, Keep my heart firm upon your religion. So here the realities have been turned upside down amongst the people. So Amma Fadin Alladhi Jaat Bihir Rusul Hua Ikhlasul Ibada Lilahuadin. The reality is Tawheed and sincerity. That's what the messengers came with. Amma Ibada Tul Kubur. فَهِيَ دِينُ أَبِي جَهْلِ وَأَبِي لَهَبِ وَدِينَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ As for worshipping the graves, that is the religion of Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab. And that is the religion of the Mushrikun. لَيْسَتْ هِيَ دِينُ الرُّسُولِ It is not the religion of the messengers, alayhim as-salatu wa 
ولكن إذا ظهر الجهل وظهر اتباع الهوى حصل في الأمة ما حصل من جعل هذه الأمور الشركية من الدين وجعل التوحيد هو الخروج عن الدين ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله But then the Sheikh says when ignorance appears when ignorance appears amongst the people and following desires appears amongst the people that's what they begin doing in this ummah then it occurs that they begin to make the affairs of shirk as affairs of religion as they see it and they begin to make tawheed as something external and outside of the religion and there is no might no power except with Allah so then Sheikh Al-Fawzan goes on to mention here قوله باب ما جاء في حماية المصطفى the title the chapter regarding what has come what has been mentioned of the messenger's preservation the preservation that the messenger applied and implemented and the word used here is al-mustafa himayatul mustafa mustafa meaning mukhtar the chosen one that comes from the arabic of as-safwa and that is and gives the grammar and that is a safwa meaning something selected and chosen as Allah said in the Quran Allahu yastafi min al-malaikati rusulan wa min al-nas that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selects and chooses from his angels messengers and from the people yani yakhtar wa innahum indana lamin al-mustafain Al-Akhyar, that they are the chosen ones, meaning Nabiyuna Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, bal huwa khayruhum wa afdaluhum, fahuwa al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ikhtarahu Allahu lil-risala wal-qiyam bida'watihi ala fatratin min al-rusul, wahuwa khatamu al-Nabiyyin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So al-Mustafa, meaning the chosen one, the selected one, the one whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose and select from amongst the people to be the final messenger. And there is that narration about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looked into the hearts of the creation and saw that the best of them were the tribes and it mentions about Quraysh etc. going down to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَقَوْلُهُ جَنَابُ التَّوْحِيدِ الْجَنَابُ هُوَ الْجَانِبِ فالجناب والجانب بمعنى واحد أي حمايته صلى الله عليه وسلم حدود التوحيد In the title when it says جناب التوحيد جناب meaning the جانب meaning the boundaries the protection that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم gave to the boundaries of توحيد preserving and protecting the boundaries of Tawheed to not allow any shirk to enter into it. 
من أن يدخل عليه الشرك بسبب وسائل الشرك والتساهل فيها because of the وسائل the various means of shirk and because of the tasahul fiha the fact that people become lax with these types of things and they slowly allow things to occur and it builds up one to the next until the boundaries of tawheed are penetrated فالرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم حما حدود التوحيد حماية بليغة The Prophet وسلم, preserved and protected the boundaries of Tawheed with a great deal of protection and preservation. بحيث أنه نهى عن كل سبب أو وسيلات توصل إلى الشرك to the extent that he forbade every means, every cause that leads and takes on to shirk occurring. وَلَوْ كَانَتْ هَذِهِ الْوَسِيلَةِ فِي أَصْلِهَا مَشْرُوعَةِ كَالصَّلَةِ فَإِذَا فُعِلَتْ عِنْدَ الْقُبُورِ فَهُوَ سِيلَةِ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ the messenger blocked every possible pathway leading to shirk, even if those particular actions are in their origin legislated. Prayer, for example, prayer obviously is legislated. However, if the prayer is being done at the graves, that is not legislated. So the messenger stopped that, blocked that. And if a person comes along and says, how can you stop me from praying? He's praying at the grave, praying. He says, how can you stop me from praying? I'm praying. Is prayer not established? Then of course prayer is established. But his method of prayer and his location of prayer those types of affairs are not established. It's like the example of that man when he prayed after the Fajr prayer or after the Sunnah. He came into the Masjid, prayed the two Sunnah of Fajr, and then after that you're supposed to wait until the Fard prayer begins. He came in, prayed his Sunnah, and then after praying the sunnah, before the fard prayer, got up and started praying more sunnah. So then it's mentioned how, I think Shaykh al-Albani himself said to that man, stop praying, don't pray. The man said, how can you possibly stop me from praying? What is wrong with praying? I'm praying. The Shaykh said, the prayer isn't the problem. The prayer is legislated. But what and how and where you are doing it, that is the bid'ah, that is the problem. You are praying at a time which the sunnah says is a prohibited time of prayer. In the morning you pray your sunnah for fajr, then there's no other prayer until the actual fard. No other sunnahs to be prayed there. You don't just pray two and two and two waiting for the imam to come. There's no other prayer. 
So the man, when he said, I'm praying, what's wrong with praying? Nothing wrong with praying. But where and how and what you are doing with your prayer, that's the problem. Praying at a time where it's prohibited. Same here. Prayer isn't the problem. But this location and this belief of yours, of barakah and intercession and all of that, your prayer here now becomes a problem and incorrect. So the messenger blocked every pathway to shirk. وَلَوْ حُسِنَتْ أَوْ حَسُنَتْ نِيَّةُ فَاعِلِهَا And these are all important points. Even if the person doing that wrong, his intention is pure as they claim. When a person does a bid'ah, he thinks he is worshipping Allah. His intention as far as he is concerned is pure. He believes his intention is pure. He's doing an act of worship to Allah when he performs the bid'ah. That's why it's mentioned that bid'ah is more problematic than sins. Because when a person commits a sin and you tell him that's a sin and you shouldn't be doing that, he knows it's a sin. If he's committing a sin, that he knows it's a sin, when you tell him you shouldn't be doing the sin, he knows he shouldn't be doing the sin. And so maybe, maybe your words may impact upon him, and he may stop doing the sin because he knows it's a sin. But the person doing a bid'ah, does he believe he's doing anything wrong? No, he actually believes he's doing something good, worshipping Allah. And that's why they say the person doing a bid'ah is far more unlikely to return from it than somebody doing an actual sin. Because the person doing an actual sin knows he's sinning. And if you keep advising him, maybe it'll impact and he'll realize because he knows he's sinning, he may come back from it. But the one doing a bid'ah, no matter how much you tell him, he doesn't really uh, register what you're telling him. Because he doesn't understand that he's doing anything wrong in the first place. So these affairs are dangerous. Even if the person claims his niyyah is pure and sincere, then that is still false. And that's a basic principle. A basic principle of the religion that all acts of worship, al-a'mal, al-salihat, for them to be righteous actions, they all have to be built upon. The two pillars, the rukna, al-amal, as they call it, the two pillars of your actions of worship, and they are, of course, al-ikhlas, wal-mutaba'ah, sincerity and following the sunnah so if a person claims to have the good intention so they are claiming they've got the ikhlas but even if they have they do not have the mutaba'ah and therefore their action will still not be from the salihat a sincere intention alone 
is not sufficient for the action to be from the salihat. وَعْمَلُ الصَّالِحَاتِ How many times in the Qur'an? The salihat, sincerity alone is not enough. The mutaba'ah is required with it. And that's why the famous statement, كَمْ مِنْ مُرِيدٍ لِلْخَيْرِ لَمْ يُصِبْهُ How many people, they desire good. كَمْ مِنْ مُرِيدٍ لِلْخَيْرِ how many people who want goodness, they claim ikhlas, lam yusibhu, they never actually achieve goodness. Because sincerity alone is not enough for the action to be correct and accepted. You must have alongside the sincerity, al-mutaba'ah, following the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. That is the introduction. Then we come to the first evidence. وَقَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِيكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ This particular ayah where it says لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِيكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ and then it mentions that Tamamul Ayah Harisun Alaikum Bil Mu'minina Raufur Rahim. And they say, Verily there has come upon you a messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from amongst yourselves. And the scholars they mention that the reason why Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sent from amongst themselves was for that to be a means of greater acceptance for the people that it's not just some stranger from some other tribe from some other country from some other land he was from their own people no reason for them to say we reject him he's an outsider he's not an outsider he's not an angel outside of the human race He's not some other tribe, some other nationality or race, as we say. He was from their own people. So they could not say we have a reason to reject him. From amongst themselves, a messenger has come to you who is well known to you. From amongst themselves means that he would be well known to them. And he was, even before he became a prophet, he was known amongst them as Al-Ameen, the trustworthy one. They recognized Muhammad as a trustworthy individual even before he was given the prophethood. He was known like that amongst them. So he has come to you from amongst yourselves, the Prophet Muhammad It grieves him that you should receive any injury or difficulty. It grieves the messenger that you should receive or uh, some difficulty or hardship should occur to you. Azizun alayhi. That it's something heavy upon him. Ma anittum. What you encounter, what you face and some difficulties that occur. And then... He, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is anxious over you. 
anxious over you that you be rightly guided and that you repent to Allah and that you seek pardon and that you are forgiven for your sins or seek for the forgiveness and you are entered into paradise. He is anxious over the people that they should come into that and repent and seek pardon and enter into Islam. Harisun alaykum. Harisun alaykum. That he is, uh, has that strong desire for your guidance and is anxious over your state and your affair. Harisun alaykum. Bil mu'minina. Ra'ufur Rahim. And he is, the messenger is full of, uh, of uh, uh, concern full of concern, full of kindness and mercy for the believers, full of concern and kindness and mercy to the believers. These are the characteristics mentioned of the Prophet ﷺ. So when Allah said, indeed there has come to you, laqad, Many other ayat that comes up, laqad is an emphasis. It is an emphasis in the ayah. The lam is the lamul qasam of an oath that indeed, verily, there has come to you. And it's uh, with the mahdhuf, meaning it's like saying, by Allah there has come to you. Wallahi laqad ja'akum. That by Allah there has come to you. And this come to you specifically it was addressing at that time the Arabs. Specifically at that time the Arabs. They were the ones whom the messenger came into. But then also of course the ayah addresses all of mankind on the whole. That the messenger has come to you all. For the guidance of الثقلين, the humans and the jinn. So, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ That indeed by Allah, He has come to you, the messenger, the one who the revelation was given to, and He has been commanded to convey it. And here the Shaykh briefly mentions the difference between the Rasul and the Nabi. We've spoken about that before many times too. What is the difference between a Rasul and a Nabi? A messenger and a prophet. What is the difference? A messenger comes with new revelation. The prophet comes to affirm what came before. Anybody else? Any other definitions? Difference between a messenger and a prophet. Messengers have received their books from Allah, like Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is a messenger. He got the Quran, and Musa got the Torah, and Isa Injil. But the prophets? Prophets have not received any, any kind of books. The prophets actually did get books too. The Wahi, the Revelation, all of them they got books. But we don't know the names of the other books. So all of the prophets also got books. All of the messengers, prophets, all of them got a book. The book is the wahi, the revelation they were given. 
So they did all get that. But there is maybe other differences. The law. The, the, messa, the messenger, they broke the law. The prophet, they just they fix the, the law before. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. Same thing, you're right. That's one definition. Messengers were given new revelations. Every time a messenger came, he was given the wahi, a revelation that was new, a new legislation. Whereas when the prophets came, they were given the same revelation as the previous messenger, to reaffirm it and to reestablish it and to spread it and convey it. Because there are obviously a lot more prophets than there are messengers. So if you think that throughout history, messengers were being sent between time to time, and within those times there would have been obviously prophets. Those prophets were given revelation of the previous messenger to re-establish it. But when the next messenger came, he was given a new revelation. And that's why they say as well, Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned another difference between prophets and messengers, messengers were sent to highly or extremely uh, hostile people. Whereas prophets were sent to lesser hostility. Because every time the messengers came with a new revelation now, to spread that amongst the people, those people were hostile to them. Whereas the prophets who then came afterwards were simply building upon what that messenger had come with, so there was less hostility. Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned that as one of the differences. Messengers came to hostile people, whereas prophets came to less, less hostility in their people. As for the common definition that is widespread all the time, That they were both given revelation, but the messengers were commanded to convey it, and the prophets were not commanded to convey it. That's widespread. It is mentioned in the books of the scholars, etc. But many of the scholars, after analyzing the issue, they came to the conclusion that is not the correct definition. Prophets were given revelation, and they were also commanded to convey it. They were commanded to convey it to like the messengers. But the difference is about the type of revelation they were given, whether a new one for messengers or the previous one for the prophets, and the type of people they were sent to, whether those who were kuffar and hostile, like at the time of Ibrahim salam in Babel, Iraq, they say there was not a single Believer, he was sent to a nation of full, fully a nation of kuffar, not a single believer. So, those are some of the differences they mention. So, then the Sheikh he discusses some of those differences and topics as well here. And then, after that, he mentions min anfusikum that the messenger was sent from amongst yourselves. Meaning, min jinsikum min al-Arab. From yourselves, from the Arab at that time, upon your tongue, addresses you as you understand he is one of your people. And the scholars, they say that is from 
the blessing of Allah that the messenger was sent from the own people so that they could not have an excuse to reject him. They could not say he's an outsider, he's this, he's that, he's not human, he's angel. He was a human from their own people of their own tongue as a messenger sent to them. فَمِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ أَنْ جَعَلَ هَذَا الرَّسُولَ يَتَكَلَّمُ بِلُغَتِنَا وَنَعْرِفُ نَسَبَهُ وَنَعْرِفُ لُغَتَهُ وَلَمْ يَكُنْ أَجْنَبِيًّا لَعْرِفُ So from the blessing of Allah, this Prophet came with our language, we know the Arabic language, and he came with a lineage that we know. We know who he is, he's not some outsider, stranger, unknown. We know the lineage of the messenger, who he is, who his father was, who his grandfather was, who his great-grandfather was. The lineage of the messenger is known to 10-15 grandfathers. And then there is more lineage that carries on beyond that all the way to Adam salam, but it's differed over near the top. But the bottom end of the lineage, multiple grandfathers, long way up it is established and known exactly who the Prophet Muhammad was. Azizun alayhi, that it is a burden and a difficulty upon the messenger, ma'anittum, meaning those difficulties that you encounter, the hardships that you encounter, the believers, the ummah, that is a difficulty upon the messenger to burden. وَلِهَذَا كَانَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَجِبُ أَوْ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ بَعْضَ الْعَمَالِ وَلَكِنَّهُ يَتْرُكُهَا أو كان يَا يَجِبُ يَجِبُ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ بَعْضَ الْعَمَالِ لَكِنَّهُ يَتْرُكُهَا رَحْمَةً بِأُمَّتِي خَشْيَةً يَشُقَّ عَلَيْهِمْ So there are certain affairs that the messenger would have to do or, or, or he would love to do but he would leave those affairs as a mercy upon the ummah, fearing that it would become a burden upon them. One of those examples is the taraweeh prayer. Initially, the Prophet ﷺ prayed the taraweeh prayer in jama'ah with the rest of the believers, with the companions. But then after the third night, or on the third night, he didn't come out to do the taraweeh prayer with them. Or the fourth night he didn't come out to do the taraweeh with them. And then when he prayed Fajr, he clarified to them, بَيَّنَ لَهُمْ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنَّهُ لَمْ يَتَخَلَّفْ عَنْهُمْ إِلَّا خَوْفَهُ أَنْ تُفْرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ صَلَاةَ التَّرَاوِيحِ He did not stay behind and miss the taraweeh with them, except because he feared if he carried on coming out every night, and they carried on praying in jama'ah every night, that perhaps the ruling would come that the taraweeh is an obligation. You have to come out and pray taraweeh. Of course we know it is not a fard prayer, it is a sunnah prayer. So the messenger said he feared that this would become a burden upon the people, so he didn't do it. There are other famous examples. Lawla an ashukka ala ummati la'amartuhum bisiwaq. Now was it not for the fact that I would burden my ummah, he said, I would have commanded you to have to use the siwak every time you pray as an obligation that you be a sinner if you didn't do it. But the messenger said, I feared the burden upon people. You have to remember your siwak every time, etc. and use it. That he did not do that. Also, there's the example of the Isha prayer, 
with all of the obligatory prayers, the sunnah is that you're supposed to pray them at the beginning of the time. When the time of the prayer enters, as soon as the time enters, you're supposed to pray the prayer at the beginning time of the prayer. Except Isha, the sunnah with Isha is you are supposed to delay it and pray it at the end time, which is differed over. Some of them say the middle of the night is the end time for Isha. Some of them say two-thirds of the night or a third of the night, and some of them all the way up until Fajr time enters. So it is sunnah to delay the Isha prayer. But again, the messenger didn't used to do that all the time for fear of burden upon the people if you delay the Isha prayer too late to the third of the night. And generally with the commandments, the affair of ease would be taken into consideration and the lack of burden and difficulty occurring would be taken into consideration. So that's what it says here, that it was difficult upon the messenger to see any harm or burden upon you. And then at the end, Ra'ufur Rahim, that he was of a caring nature and gentle and kind and merciful to the believers. As for the disbelievers though, the Prophet was severe upon the disbelievers, but he was uh, of gentle, uh, of a gentle nature and merciful to the believers. That's where we'll stop on for today then. We'll carry on and finish off the rest of that ayah and the rest of the chapter next time insha'Allah ta'ala. So we'll conclude upon that for today. Any questions, anything to add? for worldly life as it comes in shirk greed for worldly life does it come into shirk yeah uh, greed for worldly life chasing after the world and the luxuries of the world that doesn't necessitate shirk but it could end up leading a person to abandoning aspects of his religion because of his chase for the worldly matters and that's why the messenger said, do not chase after the worldly matters. Kun dunya Be in this world as though you are a stranger or somebody passing through. Sheikh Al-Fawzan said, this is an evidence that you don't chase after the worldly matters. You don't chase after the glitter, the, the, the luxuries and the bliss of the world. You don't chase after those matters. You be in this world like a stranger passing through or a traveler passing through, because a stranger, if you are a stranger somewhere, it means you are not in your homeland. If you're a stranger somewhere, you're in a country or a place that isn't your homeland or your residence, you're a stranger. And if you're a traveler somewhere, it means you are not in your homeland either. That's why the two examples have been given. A stranger is a person who isn't in his homeland. In your homeland, in your residence, in your place, you are not a stranger. Outside of your homeland and your residence, somewhere else, you are a stranger. And a traveler, if you're traveling somewhere, that also means you are no longer in your homeland, your residence, your home. 
So you're a traveler. Those two examples are given because a person should behave in this world like a stranger or a traveler, meaning you treat this world as though it is not your, your residence, your abode. A stranger doesn't treat that place as his home. It's not his home, he's a stranger there. A traveler doesn't treat that place as his home. He's a traveler there. So you don't treat this world as your home. You're a stranger here. You're a traveler passing through here. So if you're a stranger here, it's not your homeland. You're a traveler in this world. It's not your homeland. Every stranger somewhere else or traveler somewhere else has a homeland somewhere. So then what is our homeland here? The Sheikh said, Sheikh Fawzan said, if we are strangers or travelers in this world, where is our homeland that we want to go back to? The Akhirah Paradise. Paradise is the homeland. Every stranger or traveler has somewhere to go back to for the people here. The Sheikh said, you are strangers and travelers in this world. Your homeland is paradise, the original home. Because Adam salam was originally in Paradise. But was he in the paradise that the people are going to be put into on Yawm Al-Qiyamah or a different paradise? Can be different. Can be different one? Different levels. But the same paradise or not? Different, same, same. Different, same, that's the <laughs> way. Huh? Was Adam in the same paradise, the Jannah, that's mentioned in the Quran, the Sunnah, the Jannah? That is prepared for the believers. Is that where Adam salam was? Or was it a different paradise, different Jannah that he was in? Different? Narration what? Alright, so there's a, about the no eye has seen and no ear has heard and it has not occurred to anybody. So if that is an absolute negation, it would therefore have to negate Adam as well, that's a, that's a possible evidence to suggest that Adam hasn't been in the, the Jannah that is mentioned for the believers, possibly, there's a huge discussion on it, and you can go to Al-Hadi Al-Arwah, Hadi Al-Arwah, the book of Ibn Al-Qayyim, big, big chapter about whether Adam was in the original paradise that uh, everybody will be in. Or was it some other paradise? And many of the scholars, they say it was some other paradise. And some of them say, no, it was this paradise. Well, that's another huge uh, discussion amongst the scholars. Ibn Qayyim has chapters on it. Anybody else? You know, like um, that saying, you mentioned takhliya ba'da. What was the last word? No, the takhliya is qabla, not ba'da. At-tahliya. So it's to like to clean before the adorning, right? Sort of, yeah, cleansing, cleansing prior to the adornment, along those lines. Can that be like, and then you mentioned like Makki ayahs and then Madani ayahs. So can that be referred to like, can you explain it like Aqeedah, then Manhaj, or not like that? No, no, the, the, those things aren't separable in that way. They all come together. The scholars, they say the best book of Manhaj is Kitab al-Tawheed. Manhaj isn't just, you know, people, they think manhaj is, how do you deal with an innovator? But what's your manhaj on tawheed and shirk? What's your manhaj with dealing with affairs of shirk? Manhaj is a much broader affair. 
And that's why the scholars, they say the greatest book on manhaj of a Muslim is Kitab al-Tawheed. To understand what your aqidah is, how you interact with these beliefs of people and the, uh, what they're upon. And this is one of the greatest books of manhaj. And then all the other affairs in the specifics of uh, innovators and other matters, they come into it as well. But they aren't separable in that way. Anybody else? Ah, that was a homework, wasn't it? Wasn't it a homework a few weeks ago to find out what you're supposed to say when you yawn? Anybody? Nothing. Nothing? I think Sheikh Zubayr mentions that. He says nothing that we know in the Sunnah, but it's just better to cover your mouth because it's from Shaytan. So, Sheikh bin Bazi said that there is nothing known as a, as a supplication specifically for when you yawn. Sheikh bin Baz said there is no supplication known specifically authentic in the Sunnah that you say when you yawn. Then you say to them, we don't know of any particular specific supplication in the Sunnah that says you're supposed to say that. And if they say it, then they can give you the evidence if they have something. Um, the child themselves is their mukallaf, that level. So he hasn't even said Alhamdulillah. Or has. No, no, he hasn't. He's not speaking. He can't even speak. So uh, the Yarhamukallah is only supposed to be said as a response to Alhamdulillah. So it, it wouldn't really be said there. It's only supposed to be said as a response to Alhamdulillah then Yarhamukallah. So Allah alam, but it would not appear that you say it there. But everybody can look, see if there's any fatwas. Um, you mentioned you can't pray in the group, pray at the group. How about Salatul Janazah? Janazah is permissible. If you miss the Janazah prayer, it is permissible to go to the grave where the person was buried and pray the Janazah prayer. That's established in the Sunnah when the woman who used to clean the mosque of the Prophet ﷺ, when she died, the companions buried her, and then afterwards the messenger. Uh, uh, mentioned something that he, he realized that she was missing so he asked the companions where is she they said that she died and we buried her and in some narrations it mentions because she had died at night and they didn't want to come and disturb the messenger so they just went and buried her themselves but then the messenger when he found out he said you should have told me that you should have told me and then he went to the graveyard and he prayed the janazah upon her there but then the question is how do you pray it if you go to the graveyard where are you going to stand? Same with the body is going to be in front of you, facing the Qibla, no problem. Anything else? But, but there's a difference between how you stand between, on a man and a woman. For the man you stand where, for the woman you stand where? At the head, for the man. For the, for the man you stand at the head and the woman? The middle. The middle. Huh? Now it's different over anyway, the, uh, the Salatul Ghaib. <coughs> Praying Janazah upon a person that isn't there, the body isn't there, maybe died in a different country. That's differed over anyway, the rulings on that. Some of the scholars, they say it's only permissible if a Muslim died in some other land, some other place, 
and nobody prayed janazah on him. Maybe there was a, a revert brother that you know, for example, just a, a hypothetical example. He goes to his country in Europe somewhere or whatever place to visit his family, happens to die there. His family go and bury him, everything, they're all kuffar. Nobody prayed janazah on him. So now you can pray Salat al-Ghaib here because nobody prayed the janazah upon him. Some scholars say it's only in that circumstance where no janazah has been prayed on that person, he's been buried some other place, so you can now pray the janazah because no janazah has been prayed. But they say, those ones are from that opinion that you don't pray it if it's already been prayed. If some Muslim died in another place and they prayed the janazah, did everything, then there's no reason for you to be praying janazah now. And many of the scholars have that opinion, what janazah is there, is there for that situation? The example they use, the scholars who say you can pray the janazah, salat al-ghaib is the Prophet praying upon Najashi. But that's because at that time over there, with Najashi, had anybody prayed upon him? Many of them, they say, uh, what's indicated is that nobody had prayed upon him. And that's why the messenger did the salat al-ghaib. So many of the scholars, they don't allow it, that you pray the ghaib prayer just to pray it. Even though it's been done and prayed and everything properly, Muslims have taken care of that. And all of that is the fard kifaya. That they go and do the, the ghusl and the janazah and the, the burial and they do all of that. So Allah alam, if it's really even permissible to be doing that, there is of course opinions that do allow it. Uh, some of them they say if it was a person of like a avama in the religion, a person of great standing and station in terms of knowledge, and uh, uh, rank in the religion, like they did with Sheikh bin Baz when he died. When Sheikh bin Baz died 20 years ago, they were praying Salat al-Ghaib everywhere, the dunya. They were praying Salat al-Ghaib all over the place. Maybe Allah alam. But your question, if it's allowed, was what? Well, those are the kinds of restrictions there. Some of them say it's only allowed if no janazah was prayed out there. Uh, and the ones who say it is allowed, you know, that's an opinion with certain general evidences. Hmm. Are they, they're going back to the, um, where the Prophet prayed on the woman. Did the companions bury her without praying the janazah? No, no, they had prayed. The companions buried her, prayed the janazah, everything. But then the messenger went to the body, the actual body. That's different to Salat al-Ghaib. You went to the body and prayed, that's permissible. Imagine now somebody dies in some other place, London, some faraway place, maybe another country. They do the janazah, they bury the person, you get there late. Your flight is late or your train was late. They buried that person, prayed the janazah, everything. You can still go to the grave and pray your janazah upon the person. So the people can't use that as an evidence then? For the what? Janazah or ghaib. No, because ghaib, the clear difference is the body isn't there. The asal of the janazah prayer is to pray upon that person. If the person isn't there, now you've got new rulings. There the janazah is being prayed still on that person. So we've got one question. <clears throat> Let's say, like, you have um, friends or relatives, family that may not like that might fall into the like beliefs of Sophia. Now, then they've buried. Let's say in Pakistan, they there's a graveyard and there's like five bodies there of people that you knew. But obviously, their prayer is not accepted. Allah knows best because they got like big flaws in their qida. So let's say now, you can, if you follow the opinion where you can do it. Let's say I could just do it here. So that could be one of the reasons, maybe, that you have family members who are upon tasawwuf and all these kinds of deviated uh, methodologies, quite deviated upon 
shafa'a and all types of things and they've prayed the janazah upon someone and you think the level of their deviance in their beliefs that you would rather pray the janazah yourself but you can't go out there you can't get there that would be a type of scenario where you would find leeway from the scholars who are leaning towards the opinion of the permissibility of it but was there some of them don't pray even fatiha in the janazah prayer so would that then to be a definite because you have to pray fatiha right at all yeah some of them they don't they say imam doesn't even pray they say we don't pray i've been there oh yeah like um, in the hanafi opinion uh, uh, so they say in the ayah of the quran it says read whatever is easy for you and so they say what is easy for you could be anything it could be less than fatiha but obviously that is you know it's a, a, an opinion which is not going to be accepted or, or strong in any way so yeah you could use that as, an, as a reasoning too and the last part now there's six people can you just do one prayer and include all the, for example if there were six or ten or three people or yeah yeah multiple people can be prayed upon at once yeah. okay. you can do janazah for multiple people in one janazah prayer. and again it's just your intention you don't have to say anything mm. or anything All right, conclude upon that for today. Inshallah ta'ala, we'll resume with the chapter next time. Oh. You finished your obligatory prayer and then you want to do what? First, again, before you get to the permissibility, it's different over as to whether you even need to do the adhan in that situation. Now, at home, if you're praying, you miss the jama'ah in the masjid, is it an obligation to do the adhan? That's uh, not uh, uh, established as one opinion. There are multiple opinions on that. But uh, this uh, situation, Allah, I don't believe that there would be a prohibition for it. You pray your, your obligatory prayer. You're, you're making the adhan for those people to come to the prayer. You can even still pray as a nafal. You can pray. You can even lead them. You could even lead them in the prayer as a, as a supererogatory prayer for your intention. Like Mu'adh ibn Jabal used to do. He used to pray Isha behind the Prophet. And then he used to go to his local area and lead them in Isha prayer himself. So they would have been doing adhan again. Allah Allah. Right, Ikhwan, we'll continue next time.